And would you come and share our scriptures for this morning? First scripture this morning is from the book of Genesis, chapter 45, verses 1 through 15, on page 75 in your pew Bible. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants, and he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him, and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, Come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now, do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now there has been famine in the land, and for the next five years there will be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve you for a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household and ruler of all Egypt. Now hurry back to my father and say to him, This is what your son Joseph says. God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Don't delay. You shall live in the region of Goshen and be near me, you, your children and grandchildren, your flocks and herds, and all you have. I will provide for you there because five years of famine are still to come. Otherwise, you and your household and all who belong to you will become destitute. You can see for yourselves, and so can my brother Benjamin, that it is really I who am speaking to you. Tell my father about all the honor you accorded me in Egypt and about everything you have seen, and bring my father down here quickly. Then he threw his arms around his brother Benjamin and wept, and Benjamin embraced him, weeping, and he kissed all his brothers and wept over them. Afterwards, his brothers talked with him. The second reading is from the book of Matthew, chapter 15, verses 21 through 28, and page 1522 in the Pew Bibles. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him, crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, Send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. He replied, It is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Yes, it is, Lord, she said, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus said to her, Woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. The word of God.
Well, I hope you've been enjoying these hymns as much as fun as it was for me and Amanda and Judy and Jeff to rehearse them. It's a lot of fun. Um, as I mentioned, my dad's here today, and I remember sitting with my dad watching uh, the Gaither Gospel Hour, you know. They'd all sit around, around a piano or something, and sing some of these songs. And so this was sort of the bread and butter growing up, and I've probably over the last eight or ten years I've fallen back in love with these songs. Uh, they tell such great stories. And as Amanda said, they they kind of are the heart and soul kind of of, of faith and country together. And um, as I mentioned before, these are the DNA, the pulse of of our Methodist movement, which was revivalistic and camp meeting at you know at its beginning here in America. And so when you raise your voices in these songs, you're joining generations of other Christians and indeed other Methodists for the 200 years ago who were singing these same hymns. Isn't that? Uh, just one quick announcement before we move into a uh, time for uh, reflection on the scripture in Genesis. Just to remind you that at 12.30 today, we'll have our reception in Fellowship Hall for Hector and Lydia, who will be leaving us at the end of this month to take new church assignments in New York. So 12.30, uh, please join us for 12.15. 12.30. If you get there at 12.15, you get in line for the food. So you maybe you can get there at 12.15. And you can also be a good Methodist. You've sung these old songs and you've eaten. So you got all the bases covered. Um, so 12.15 to 12.30, we'll, we'll begin with some food and fellowship and then uh, reflect on their ministry here and give God thanks for them and ask for his blessing as they step into this new chapter of their lives. That's at 12.30 today. Friends, let's join in a moment of prayer. Lord, we pray that as we uh, look to the scriptures for a word from you, that we might be open to receive it. Our hearts would be open for your spirit to plant in it something that you would have for us today. Pray this prayer by faith in Jesus' name. Amen. So since the day of Pentecost, the set Sunday where we celebrated the Holy Spirit coming down on those first believers gathered as recorded in the book of Acts chapter 2. Every Sunday after that in the revised common lectionary, the series of readings, we start back from the beginning. And that's intentional. The church is born, and then we go back to Genesis, and we understand the roots of our faith, this faith that the Holy Spirit in the lives of believers makes alive. And as you recall, we looked at Genesis 1, the story of creation, Genesis 3, the fall, and then going ahead to Abraham, and then to Isaac, and then to Jacob, and last week, and this week, which will be our final week, in the book of Genesis, we have the life of Joseph. And as you recall, we look at these stories and we find principles for our own faith. In fact, that's what the New Testament tells us we can mine from these stories in Genesis. Remember Hebrews chapter 11. All these figures of faith are lifted up for us as examples for our own life of faith. And we find characters, as you recall, who are messed up, mucked up, can't do anything about it must rely totally on the grace of God. Abraham and Sarah. Isaac and Rebekah. Jacob and Esau. Then Jacob and Rachel and Leah. And then today, the story of Joseph. You know, in my, going on 12 years now, of pastoral ministry, rarely have I ever heard someone maybe sit in my office or talk to me on the phone or send me an email with an objection to faith 
that is sort of rooted in some sort of a philosophical argument, right? You know, uh, Blaise Pascal's argument about the, you know, wouldn't you rather have taken the chance and find out that it's not true than take the chance and find out that it is? About faith. All those arguments, you know, that philosophers and theologians have put forward to the existence of God and the importance of faith. I've really never, ever heard someone object to faith on those grounds. You know what I've often heard? There can't be a good God. If God is good, how come this happened to me? If God is good and all-powerful, why, why did this happen to my child or my loved one? Why are there natural disasters that seem to indiscriminately kill thousands of people? Rather than the philosophical, often what I hear is the personal. Personal. And those are real questions that each one of us should take seriously and respond to with empathy and compassion and a listening ear. And when we come to the life of Joseph, we find someone who had every right to object to faith based on the personal, don't we? Here's someone who's, um, you know, probably, probably didn't know it then, but his great-grandfather was like, you know, big deal, Abraham. His great-grandmother, Sarah, she's a big deal, right? Uh, and then Isaac, his grandfather, and his father, Jacob. I mean, these are, you know, when, when we talk about the faith, we talk about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? These are big deals, And Joseph is in this line, this great line of faith. And if anyone could object to the goodness and the mercy of God based on personal experience, it's Joseph. Remember what happens. He's a 17-year-old arrogant kid having these great dreams. And then he goes and he tells his brothers about them. Ah, you're going to bow down to me. Well, as you can imagine, that does not ingratiate himself with his family. His brothers hatch a plan to try to get rid of him. They throw him down a well, and then one of them has this pang of conscience, and they see some traders that are going to be going down to Egypt with slaves, and so they sell them to the slave trader. At 17! So his, his brothers are murderous toward him, try to kill him, and then they eventually, maybe they don't kill him, but they sell him into slavery, and you can determine for yourself which is a worse outcome. They lie about it, take his coat his father had given him, dip it in animal blood, take it back to his father, come up with a plan how he's died. Joseph goes down into Egypt as a slave, eventually moves into Potiphar's sphere of influence, but Potiphar's wife tries to uh, you know, come on to Joseph, and when he rejects her advances, she lies about him, gets him thrown into prison for years. Joseph. If anyone could object to the goodness of God based on personal experience, it's Joseph. Well, when he's in prison, he starts to interpret dreams and understand them and give an interpretation of dreams, starts to gain influence with some important people, eventually becomes the second most powerful person in all of Egypt. He becomes the prime minister to Egypt's pharaoh. And it is then, at this point, that something happens. The land where Joseph is from starts to experience a famine. And so to save themselves, his brothers go down into Egypt to try to get some grain or to figure out a way to deal with their impending famine and their hunger. And they go down and eventually they discover that this man who's so powerful in Egypt is actually their brother Joseph. And Joseph teaches us something in his response to his brothers that show us how to wrestle with 
that intersection between life's difficulty and tragedy and hardship and pain and the goodness of God. Joseph does three things here that are so important. He avoids God's prerogatives. He takes God's view and he reflects God's love. Here's what I mean by that. He avoids God's prerogative. What is the original sin? Now, you all know I'm a conversational preacher. You can respond. What is original sin? Adam and Eve in the garden, right? And what is it that Adam and Eve do? They disobey. God has put a tree, right, in this garden. And he says, you can do everything you want. Just don't eat from this tree. Now, what is it? In this apple, is there special God juice that will make them? No. It's much more simple than that. In God's created design, human beings are fallible. We do not have pure knowledge. We are not God. And to take and to eat from that tree is to assume the prerogative of God, to become the arbiter of good and evil, to become our own moral compass, instead of submitting ourselves to someone whose ways are not our ways and whose wisdom is higher than ours. And so in that moment when Adam and Eve take and eat from that fruit, it's not because it's you know, going to turn them into super godlike people, physically or mentally. It's they assume for themselves a place that is not theirs to assume. And we see that downward death and destruction spiral that happens to humanity after they eat from that fruit. And as you recall when I preached on that scripture, lest we hold Adam and Eve's feet to the fire too much, you and I would have done the very same thing in their situation. This is a commentary on the human condition. To eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is to assume God's prerogatives, to sit on God's throne, to put ourselves in the place of God. How do we do that? Well, we do that in myriad ways even today. One of the phrases that I hear a lot from people is, well, you know, you believe the Bible, but now we know so many things that maybe people back then knew, but now we know that that can't be true. You know what word in that sentence does a lot of heavy lifting? Now. Let me tell you why. Eighty years ago, our grandparents and great-grandparents said and did some things that I'm sure would make us blush. What are we doing and saying now that 80 years from now our great-grandchildren are going to blush and say You see, in that sentence is to put ourselves as some sort of moral authority where we see good and evil, right and wrong, clearly. And we don't. And we're given the scriptures that we submit ourselves under. We do not put ourselves over it. We submit ourselves under it, and we allow it to guide and to dictate our lives, not the other way around. To do it the other way around, to put ourselves over scripture, is the original sin. We become the arbiters of good and evil. We become our own moral authority. And we see down the pages in the years of history how that works out. We do it by worry and anxiety. Do you know what worry and anxiety is at the core? Believing that we know more than God about how to handle a situation. Now, there can be things that we would like to see happen, things that we hope might happen, But to adopt a posture of, I don't know everything, I don't know the future, I don't know tomorrow, 
to go to Matthew chapter 6 and to hear Jesus' words, Why do you worry? Look at the birds, look at the flowers. It all happens by God's design and appointment. Why worry? Well, when we worry, we put ourselves on the throne. We make ourselves God. And another way that we do it that we see so clearly in the life of Joseph is that we become God, we assume God's prerogatives when we hold a grudge. When we hold a grudge. Paul can exhort the church in Rome and say, remember, vengeance is the Lord's. He is the one who ultimately stands in judgment over, not us. And when we hold a grudge, that's exactly what we do. Maybe someone has hurt you in your life, someone has done some things, and you know exactly what they need to pay them back. And you hold that and you nurse it. But you know what? None of us at the end of the day know what happened in somebody else's life. We don't know what led them to that point or caused them to do that thing. We have no idea. And so when we come to situations, when we hold a grudge, we assume the prerogatives of God. Joseph didn't do that. In fact, his brothers come down, and what does Joseph say to them? He says it in chapter 45, and he says it a little bit differently, but the same concept in chapter 50. You wanted to harm me. You meant this for evil. But God took it for good. In that statement, we find an individual who doesn't hold a grudge, who recognizes and is able to name the wrongdoing but does not let that hold him back from the reconciliation and the restoration of a relationship. We find great wisdom in the life of Joseph for how to enact forgiveness and reconciliation. Although to have reconciliation, you must forgive. To forgive, you don't necessarily need to be reconciled. Are you following me? Reconciliation can happen when two parties come together and want to do better and want to make something work. But you can forgive. Forgiveness can be a one-way street. All forgiveness is, is letting go of that person's control over you. Because you see, when someone has hurt you, and you hold on to that bitterness, and you nurse it, and you keep that grudge, all you're doing is hurting yourself. All you're doing is taking poison and hoping the other person dies. But when you let go and say, I'm not going to allow what that person did to define me, or to control my life, You step into being like a Joseph who says, yes, this happened. Yes, it was wrong. Yes, it was evil. But God, but God used it for something good. So Joseph, uh, she teaches us to avoid God's prerogative and then secondly, to take God's view. We also find that in that statement where Joseph is able to say, this is what you meant. You meant it for evil, but God took it for good. You know, when it comes to uh, the life of faith, there are often a couple different kinds of folks. There's the people who are the eternal optimists, right? And you know those kind of people. Oh, live a good life. God will bless you. He wants you to have your best life now. You do all these wonderful things and look at everything good that will happen to you. Those are the optimists. And then there's the pessimists. That person's being nice to you. It's only because they want something. Life is hard, life is horrible, and if you're not experiencing it now, yeah, you will. The Christian, the follower of God, and indeed the gospel, stands right in the middle of that, and it's not an either-or, it becomes a both-and, in that 
Yes, life is painful and difficult. Horrible things happen. And yet God is good. And the gospel holds those things together and offers us a different way of looking at the world. That we can be like a Joseph. Because we have not assumed the prerogatives of God, and in a stance of humility, we realize that so much of life happens beyond our understanding or beyond our knowing. And on the surface, it may look one way, and it may seem dark, and God may appear to be absent, but it's actually in those moments where God is working the most. And all that time, as Joseph is down in the well, and then he's traveling to Egypt in that slave caravan, and then when he's in prison... God was working to prepare Joseph and to bring him up to a place of influence where thousands and thousands and thousands of people, and indeed his own family, could be saved from death. Joseph takes God's view. That yes, life is hard, and at the same time, God is good. And lastly, Joseph teaches us in the life of faith how important it is to reflect God's love. We see this in his actions, and you especially see it in Genesis chapter 50. Yes, Joseph forgives them out of a sense of humility and care for them. But he doesn't just let them go. What does he do? He makes sure that they are taken care of, that their needs are met. And in fact, he goes above and beyond. If you read through the rest of Genesis chapter 50, he invites the whole family down. They come down and they settle near and in the land of Egypt. And he gives them even more than they came asking for. And if that's not a picture of grace, I'm not sure what is. Exceedingly, abundantly, all that we could ask or imagine. That's what Joseph does for his family. That's what God does for us. Joseph reflects that gracious love of God even toward people who wanted him dead. Joseph loves them and cares for them. Friends, Joseph teaches us so much about the life of faith and how important it is for us to follow this pattern that we see in him, to take stock of ourselves and make sure that in our thoughts, in our behaviors, in our actions, and in our very lives, that we are not attempting to be like God. Because, you know, the quickest way, this is not original to me, Tim Keller, the great uh, pastor who recently died, said this, the, the quickest way to be like Satan is to try to be like God. Wow. The quickest way to be like Satan is to try to be like God. Because when we assume for ourselves the prerogatives of God, we continue to mess it up and to make things worse and people get hurt. We realize who we are, we realize who God is, and secondly, we take the view of God that even in our lives, the lives of brokenness in a world of misery and death, horrible things happen, and yet God is still good. And finally, that we're called to take all of that and into that world that desperately needs a touch of divine love and grace and mercy, that we become the people through whom God works in the world to reflect that love to people around us. And we see that in the life of Joseph. We see someone at 17 years old who is arrogant and brash, who has no self-awareness or emotional intelligence, as we might call it today. 
He doesn't realize the effects of his words on other people. He doesn't realize when's a good time to speak and when's a good time to shut up. That's a good lesson for all of us. And yet, as he encounters difficulty, that is the refining fires through which God cultivates him into the person he could be. But he couldn't go from that 17-year-old down in that pit into the second-in-command in Egypt just like that. He had to go through a period where his character was refined, and he was changed. And when he grew in empathy and compassion and kindness toward other people, he had to go through all of that for God to bring him to the place where he was ultimately destined to be. And in all of that, he gets to a place where he very easily, and second in command in all of Egypt, he could have become like all those things. He could have assumed God's prerogatives. He could have held a grudge. He could have demanded that the people who had hurt him pay it back. And all of that could have happened just like that. And instead he falls on them and he hugs them and he kisses them. He names the wrong, yes, but he doesn't hold it against them. And he helps to show them through his life and through his actions how God was at work all the time, even in the deepest, darkest moments. And what they had meant for evil, God took for good. Friends, we find in Joseph so much for our own living of faith. My challenge to you this morning, spend time in the life of Joseph. Find out in his life what you can take for your own life of faith, for your own living in this broken, dark world, how you can be more of a reflection of the love of Jesus Christ to everyone you meet. Amen and amen.